Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 516 for the 23rd of October, 2016. This week, TechSmith has released updates to both Windows and Mac OS versions of Camtasia with a host of new features in both and narrowing the gap between the Mac OS version and the Windows version. Microsoft plans a significant change to how system services are handled in Windows. The result will be improved reliability when the changes are released in 2017. In short circuits, about half of all cloud-based malware is designed to deliver ransomware. Research shows that college students underestimate the financial implications of ransomware, and you'll find several new sections on the constantly updated TechBiter RSS newsfeed page. In spare parts, only on the website, a virtual 800-inch screen that you can wear. Shutterstock fights back against Adobe stock, and all flash storage is closer to becoming a reality. The long-awaited Camtasia 9, or perhaps Camtasia 3, has landed. Camtasia is TechSmith's powerful screen video capture system. New versions have been released for Windows and Mac operating systems, the functionality across platforms is now more similar than at any time in the past. Although TechSmith's Snagit can capture screen videos, Camtasia provides far more functionality. Camtasia has a much longer history on Windows. Version 1 was released in October 2002 for Windows, and TechSmith was working on version 7 for Windows by the time the first Mac version was released in 2009. As a result, the Windows version is now 9, while the corresponding Mac version is 3. Both Windows and Mac versions add new behaviors as a way to quickly animate images, video, and text, and some new callouts. The Mac version's user interface has been updated to be more like what Windows users see. For the first time, it is possible to share projects across versions, although doing so does eliminate the ability to use some effects, the ones that are available only in the Windows version. The Mac version has an updated recorder user interface and the ability to group images and videos. Voice narration and quiz functions, already part of the Windows version, have been added to the Mac version. Windows users will see faster editing and encoding. This is the result of support for 64-bit processing. There's also the ability to drag and drop assets right onto the canvas, improvements to narration and quizzing, and controls that allow adjusting brightness, contrast, and saturation. Whether you're new to Camtasia or you've upgraded from version 8 or even an earlier version, a good first step would be visiting the video tutorials online. They're short, but they still cover a lot of useful information, including the importance of creating a script before you start capturing screen images. When you're ready to start capturing the screen, you'll be offered the option of a full screen or a custom area. If your computer has a built-in camera, you can turn that on too and capture both what's on the screen and what the camera sees. 
You can specify whether Camtasia captures system audio sounds and add a separate track for narration that's recorded live. In many cases, you may want to capture audio while you're recording the screen capture and then replace that audio with a separate narration track later. Doing so eliminates keyboard and other sounds that might be distracting during playback. The editing screen displays various functions along the left side. These include media, annotations, transitions, behaviors, animations, cursor effects, voice narration, audio effects, and more. Camtasia looks a lot like a simplified video editor. In fact, that's exactly what it is, offering the basic tasks in an interface that's easy to understand without adding a lot of complexity. There's a timeline at the bottom of the screen, and that's where your screen capture video track will be. You can then add separate audio tracks, as I've done, as you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website. These tracks are for narration and music. During the recording process, Camtasia captures mouse clicks, so if you want to add a visual or audio indicator, just dropping them onto the track is all you need to do. TechSmith's instructional videos explain how to edit a presentation, but those who have any experience with video editing will have no trouble mastering the interface quickly. When you're finished, the rendering process is made easy by providing a list of uses that you plan for the video. Select one, and Camtasia will enable the correct settings. I decided to give it a try with Font Expert. That's an application I use to manage typefaces on the computer. In earlier versions of Windows, installing more than 100 typefaces created real problems. But starting with Windows 7, it became possible to install several hundred typefaces without serious system degradation. My Windows 10 system has just over 600 installed fonts and more than 9,000 typeface files that could be installed. Besides creating performance issues, having 9,000 typefaces installed would make finding the one you need far too difficult. That's why someone might want to have a typeface manager. I wanted to make a short video that explains how a typeface might be activated temporarily for use in a single project and then deactivated. You'll see two sample Camtasia videos on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Before is just the raw, unedited screen capture. The video lasts nearly two minutes and includes a lot of fumbling around with the mouse. For the after version, I've used Camtasia 9 to add music, narration, and video effects to highlight mouse operations. Just as important, the edited version is considerably shorter and eliminates a lot of that mouse fumbling. Check them out on the TechBiter Worldwide website. One of TechSmith's other applications, Snagit, can capture screen videos. These are suitable for a lot of uses, but if you need to record more complex presentations, Camtasia has the tools you need to do the job. Camtasia 9 is available for use on both Windows and Mac OS. Although the Mac version omits a few of the features found in the Windows version, it's a welcome application for Mac users. A single license allows for installation on two computers. That could be two Windows systems, two Macs, or one of each. So long as one person owns both computers, and Camtasia is active on only one at a time. So the bottom line for Camtasia, five cats. That's because TechSmith has taken an already powerful program, made it more powerful, and continued to maintain its ease of use. For more information, check out the TechSmith website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website.
Windows users who are enrolled in the fast ring of the Insider Preview program received a bit of a surprise early in October. Attempts to install build 14.942 failed at around 90% and rolled back to the previous version. In fact, there is only one way to install this build right now, and you're probably not going to like it. Now keep in mind that the fast ring is not for production machines. It virtually guarantees that the users will encounter significant problems. Build 14.942 won't install if you have any third-party protective software running. That includes all antivirus applications and any other monitoring programs such as Malwarebytes. Even if users disable Malwarebytes and their antivirus application, the installation will still fail around 90% and roll back. The build will install only if users completely uninstall those third-party applications. And after upgrading to build 14.492, you will not be able to reinstall third-party protective applications. But relax. This isn't some malevolent Machiavellian Microsoft machination. Instead, it is one step in the direction of a more reliable operating system. So let's see what's going on here. Currently, system processes all run under a single process called Service Host. If you've ever wondered what's consuming all of your disk or CPU or memory or network resources, only to have Task Manager display Service Host, you've seen this. Besides making it really difficult to identify where a problem might be, Service Host is really a house of cards. When a single process running inside Service Host fails, it's likely that the entire operating system will crash. Computers now have sufficient memory that stuffing all of the system processes into a single master process is no longer necessary. But that requires some major changes to the way processes are handled, and it's why third-party protective applications won't work in the current fast ring build. Keyword there, current. By the time the Windows 10 update is ready for consumers sometime next year, that behavior will no longer occur. Between now and then, Microsoft will make new system specifications available to third parties, and the protective software publishers will need to modify their products to function in the new operating system environment. This is one of the reasons that the fast ring should be reserved only for those who want to see Microsoft's cutting-edge changes. Even the slow ring should be used only for computers that aren't mission-critical. In my opinion, no production machine should ever run any version of an operating system that isn't the current general release, the stable version. If your computer has more than about 4 gigabytes of RAM, actually the limit is about 3.5 gigabytes, and that applies to even low-end bargain basement computers these days, most system processes will be unbundled from the service host. Microsoft expects the separation will result in increased stability for Windows 10, which is already pretty stable. As an extra advantage, researching resource usage problems will now call out individual processes in the task manager. Microsoft has avoided making this change until now because it does cause the operating system to use more RAM. That's why it won't be active unless the computer has more than 3.5 gigabytes of RAM. Allocating more RAM to the operating system won't be a problem for computers that have 8 or 16 or 32 or 64 gigabytes of RAM or even more, and that is increasingly common. Even entry-level computers now often come with 8 gigabytes of RAM.
In short circuits, here's something scary to think about. Nearly half of all cloud-based malware tries to deliver ransomware. Cloud security company Netscope says their research suggests that 44% of all cloud-based malware is intended to install ransomware on the victim's computers. The research examines ransomware and how it spreads through cloud apps within an organization. Enterprises have just under 1,000 cloud apps in use on average. Netscope Threat Research Labs says the average institution has an average of 26 pieces of malware found in cloud apps. Of the malware types detected, about 44% are common ransomware delivery vehicles, including JavaScript exploits and droppers, Microsoft Office macros, and PDF exploits. These ransomware attacks are often initially delivered through phishing and email attacks, but within cloud environments, infected and encrypted files can quickly spread to other users. The research also showed that Microsoft leads Google as the most popular cloud app. Office 365, Outlook.com, and OneDrive for Business beat their counterparts from other vendors in session volume. Microsoft productivity apps are the number one and number two most popular apps, unseating Facebook from its first place spot for the first time. Team messaging application Slack, that's a new one, is in the top 20 applications for the first time. Netscope says that security teams will need to look more closely at that application to avoid having sensitive information shared inappropriately. Marketing and collaboration categories had the highest number of cloud apps per enterprise. Despite the growing popularity of productivity and collaboration apps, the majority are still not enterprise-ready. By majority, the report says that means about 99% of productivity apps, 97% of marketing apps, not enterprise-ready. The best category was cloud-based storage apps. Of those, 76% are not enterprise-ready. The report is based on aggregated, anonymized data from Netscope Active Platform, which provides discovery and control over cloud-based apps. Findings are based on data from millions of users. If you'd like to see the full report, it's available on the Netscope website. There is a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Speaking of ransomware, college students appear to have heard of the stuff, but they seem to be unaware of the extent of the danger to their data and their bank accounts. A survey by Webroot says that students would be willing to pay about $50 to retrieve their personal data, on average. Unfortunately, most crooks who encrypt devices and then demand payment to restore files want $500 or $1,000 or more, 10 to 20 times what students say they would pay. There seems to be a bit of a disconnect here. Last year, the FBI's Internet Crime Complaint Center received 2,453 reports of ransomware. That may seem like a low number, but most victims probably never report the crime. Most news accounts discuss ransomware in terms of businesses, hospitals, police departments, schools, places like that. So students may have a minimal understanding of the threat. Students said they would pay about $30 for a dating profile, around $50 for a term paper, a little less than $80 for their banking login, and about $90 for private photos. Sometimes ransomware authors do negotiate with victims. 
But there's also a lot of variety. According to WebRoot researcher Tyler Moffat, we have seen the cost negotiated to a lower amount, he said, but we've also seen demands on individuals for upwards of $2,000. WebRoot developed a quiz to measure the average identified worth of data in the event of a ransomware attack. To take the quiz, you can visit WebRoot's What the Hack website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. information between the weekly TechBiter Worldwide reports, don't forget to check the TechBiter RSS News Feed page. This week I've added several useful news sources. The RSS News page, you'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website, is updated constantly. It contains news from worthwhile resources. Because of the ongoing interest in security topics, you'll find several new items in the list of resources. ThreatPost Security. Tech Republic Security and Dark Reading Vulnerabilities and Threats join the RSS feeds from Malwarebytes, Ars Technica, US CERT, and Krebs on Security. You'll also find new items in the Hardware and Related section where I've added an RSS feed from Macworld. This feed focuses on Mac OS. That's the new name for what used to be Mac OS X. And you'll find links to top stories from Wired, TechCrunch's Gadgets, and Tech Republic's selection of articles for small and medium businesses. There's currently only one photography-related link from Lightroom Tips. You'll find articles from PC World on Windows, Android News, Microsoft News, and PC World's hardware section. TechBiter Worldwide can't cover everything, so be sure to check out the RSS News page for constantly changing selection of articles that are worth reading. Spare Parts is also worth reading, only on the website. This week, a virtual 800-inch screen you can wear... Shutterstock fights back against Adobe stock, and all flash storage is closer to becoming a reality. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.